The first trial of the former officers charged in the killing of George Floyd is underway. Police officers are rarely prosecuted in such cases, and the world will be watching. The Minnesota Public Radio newsroom, which has followed this case in detail from the beginning, will bring listeners updates on this monumental trial and the consequences it holds for the city and the country. Listen to In Front of Our Eyes wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello? Hi there. Hey, far really far away. Sorry, sorry, I'm standing in the booth. What's okay. uh, what's happening? Um, well, uh, this morning, sorry, the prosecution rested, right? And then the jury left. The defense requested to move for acquittal based on insufficient evidence that they believe the state has provided so far. And there wasn't really much back and forth on that. The judge denied that motion. Okay. And then after that, judge says no. Yeah. Um, well, after the judge denied, I have to get back in. So. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Bye. This is 74 Seconds. I'm Tracy Mumford. The pace of the trial of Officer Geronimo Yanez has just not led up. Uh, what you just heard was our editor, Meg Martin, talking with one of our reporters, Reham Fashir, when she ducked out of the courtroom for a few seconds this morning. Now our other reporter, John Collins, is back with us. He's joining us on the, the short lunch break that they're getting in this trial. Now, today... Because the prosecution rested and the defense started their case, uh, we're going to pull back at the end of the episode and kind of look at strategy and how each side's case is going so far. But first, a lot has happened this morning. So, John, again, thank you for coming back to the studio. Let's get right to it. What happened when you got to court this morning? The first thing that happened is the prosecution entered a stipulation, they called it. And this is agreed to with the defense attorneys. And they said it stipulated, they told the jurors, that Philando Castile was not present at Super USA at the robbery we've been hearing so much about because it's been something that's been brought up over and over by the defense. And even today it was. Just real quick, the Super USA robbery that we're talking about here, that's the convenience store on Larpenter Avenue that was robbed four days before Philando Castile was shot. Uh, that is the robbery that Officer Yanez had in mind when he pulled Castile over that day. He had said over the radio that he thought Castile looked like one of the suspects in that robbery. So it sounds like the prosecution wanted to enter it into the record and make it very clear for the jury that Castile was not involved in this robbery. But there was another stipulation, right, too. That, that was not the only one. The other stipulation was that Philando Castile had a valid driver's license. He had valid insurance. He had no arrest warrants. So they wanted to be clear to the jurors that's the case. Now, why did he need to introduce that stipulation? So they wanted to get this on the record before they rested their case. And the next thing they said is the state rests. So the state rested. That's it. Two and a half days of testimony and they're done. That's big. What happened next after they rested? The next thing that came up was they had a discussion around the bench and the, the jurors were asked to leave the room again. Is that a typical thing? 
Um, they're pretty careful about what they allow the jury to see. You know, any sort of conference they have to have up at the, the judge's bench is in whispers. We can't hear, the jury can't hear. And if it's anything that could affect what arguments might come up or, you know, some sort of uh, legal approach that hasn't been talked about before or, or agreed upon, then the jurors all have to file out. We all have to stand up as they file out. And then they make their arguments and then they file back in and we all stand up and then we sit down finally. So... Okay, so they've rested their case, the jury files out. And the defense moved to acquit Yanez on all three counts. They made a motion to acquit. Based on what? They were saying that what happened was that the state has not built enough of a case to convict. And they used all these legal terms, culpable negligence, gross negligence. Um, But essentially their argument is that the state, the prosecution, has not proven that Yanez did anything beyond the authority he's given as a police officer to use force. So what did the judge say to that? The judge immediately turned around and denied it. And after it was denied, uh, prosecutors also said that they wanted to get on the record that there have been no protests during the court hearings. And this is something that the defense had used as a legal foundation to try to move this trial out of Ramsey County. The fact that they were afraid that there might be protests and it would be impossible for him to get a fair trial. Okay, John, thanks for joining me. I know you have to get back to court. Thanks, Tracy. So with the prosecution resting their case today and the defense starting theirs, we wanted to pull back for a minute, get some perspective on how the trial is progressing. Because at this rate, we could have a verdict as early as next week. And everything about this trial, as we've said, is new and unexpected because we've never had a trial like this before in Minnesota. We want to look at some of the strategies both sides are using in the trial. And while John and Reham are in court, I decided to make a call. David Harris. Hi, David. This is Tracy Mumford calling from Minnesota Public Radio. Hi, Tracy. Can you hold on just one second? Of course. David Harris is a professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He specializes in search and seizure law, police conduct, use of force. He's also the host of the podcast Criminal Injustice. When I called him, he was right in the middle of something. You always have to save unless you want to have problems. It's true. Saving (laughs) is the most important step. So how can I help you? So I was just wondering, the the prosecution rested today in the trial of Officer Geronimo Yanez. Obviously, they still have their closing arguments, but from what we've heard so far, their argument is based on the idea that no reasonable officer would have acted the way that Yanez did under the circumstances in front of him. Um, From your experience, is this short? Is this about right? Obviously, these cases are rare. That's very, very difficult to say because... Every case is uh, very much a creature of its own facts. The case will take as long as the facts require, given the theory that the lawyers construct. So it may be that a case will have huge impact, but the fact that there are only two and a half days of testimony only means that the way the lawyers have constructed the case and the facts they feel they have to put in front of the jury, that's how long they took. You shouldn't take anything from the length of the prosecution's case. 
So you've had a chance to look over kind of how they've made the case, the witnesses that they've called. I mean, they started with a character witness, essentially, one of Philando Castile's co-workers. And then they moved into the night of the shooting. They had Diamond Reynolds testify. She was in the passenger seat for all of it. They had Officer Yanis's partner, Joseph Kauser, testify. He was there that night. They really have made the case about showing the jury what happened that night. Um, from your perspective, are they just trying to to limit the case to exactly that? Like you said, it might be a complicated case, but the story is short? Yes. Um, from the point of view of the prosecution, they feel that the facts are on their side and the law is on their side. They have a case in which force was used, and they have a witness, the use of force expert, who is willing to say, uh, I know this stuff, and the force used was not reasonable. The job for the defense is different, uh, and part of it involves uh, straying into this territory of the use of marijuana and so forth. Uh, so that makes it all the more important to the prosecution to keep um, uh, to keep the jury focused on what happened so that they are not distracted. So something I think is interesting here is that the prosecution had their use of force expert. Uh, the defense also has plans to call a use of force expert. In this case, I mean, are you just finding the expert who will say what fits with your case if they each have one? Well, you know, my, in my experience, uh, even when you have an expert on each side, they are seldom equal. What you hope for is that the jury will look at the testimony of each of them and say, uh, well, this is more persuasive than that this expert was better on this point than the other one. We believe this one and not that one. Uh, it is possible in any given case for a jury to kind of throw up its hands and say, you know, we can't really tell the difference between what they said or they cancel each other out. That happens. One thing the prosecution has also done while presenting the case is that they have played the dash cam footage multiple times of what happened that evening. They played it during opening statements, and they've played it numerous times and had uh, witnesses comment on it. Is that a strategy to show this to the jury repeatedly? Well, if they didn't think it was favorable to them, they wouldn't do it repeatedly. That in certain ways, it's a very strong piece of evidence that it makes the testimony of other witnesses uh, stronger or more clear or more direct. Uh, and, it, you know, it's a central piece of evidence here because it really is the only unbiased record of what it shows. Now, you have to be careful with that because it only shows certain things. I mean, we all know that it has a, a, a focus bias, let's call it that. Um, it shows what it shows. It doesn't show what it doesn't. I mean, that sounds so obvious, but you can't assume what's happening outside the lens. They, the prosecution, have, have obviously uh, uh, thought this through, and they think that this is good for them, so they look for every opportunity to repeat it and to drum it into the jury's mind. And two words that have come up a lot with this whole case, even before the trial began, were reasonable and unreasonable. Uh, the Ramsey County attorney, when he announced charges against Officer Yanez, said no reasonable officer would have behaved this way. And that language has carried forward into the trial. It's been part of the prosecution's case, arguing that no reasonable officer would have uh, acted the way Yanez did under the same circumstances. Using words like that, reasonable and unreasonable, which are in some ways subjective words, 
in a court case. I mean, what's your take on that? Well, the reason those words keep getting repeated is because they're a part of the bedrock law that's part of this case. The Supreme Court uh, talks about use of force and use of deadly force in terms of objectively reasonable. Those are the words right out of the Graham versus Connor case from the 1980s. And it says that a police officer may use as much force and not more force than is objectively reasonable in the circumstances. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the key phrase. Uh, The idea of an objectively reasonable action uh, is that it is judged not by the subjective judgment of the person at hand, uh, but by some kind of constructed idea of a, a reasonable person. So let's say Officer Giannis says, you know, I, I made a reasonable mistake. Well, we wouldn't necessarily just take his word for it. That's the whole centerpiece of the trial. We would ask what an objectively reasonable officer would do. Not him, but this sort of idea, an abstract idea of an objectively reasonable officer. That's what makes it not subjective, but objective. So if you're the prosecution and you've just wrapped your case after two and a half days of testimony, uh, the next time we're going to hear from you, other than cross-examination, is closing arguments. In those closing arguments, are you? there's no inf- new information introduced at that point, correct? It's going to be them walking through their theory again. Uh, and don't discount the idea of cross-examination, because just uh, the cross-examination of witnesses uh, is just as important as, uh, as, as what a side puts in through its own witnesses, maybe more important in certain respects. So there's going to be plenty that will happen, assuming that the defense puts on a case. And if Officer Giannis testifies, that will be a key set of moments. So is there a reason that the prosecution would not have called Yanez themselves, that they will wait to see if he testifies? It's because he has the option not to testify, correct? Yes, that's right. It's always the defendant's uh, constitutional right to choose to testify or not. Uh, In fact, it's the defendant's choice to put on any case at all. Uh, The defendant is free to sit back and to say, you guys prove it. I don't have to say anything. Now, a jury will always want to hear from the defendant, even though the judge will say, defendant's got every right not to testify, you're to draw no inference from that. Human beings want to hear. They want to hear. And so in a case like this, if they feel they can put Officer Giannis on, uh, they're going to have to do it. So let's talk a little bit about the defense. So a large part of the defense's case relies on conveying information about the man who was killed, Philando Castile. Because if their argument is that Castile played a role in his own death, then they have to spend time establishing how he would have done that. So it's interesting to have a defense case that's about another person, that's not specifically about Giannis. Part of their case has to be about Castile and his actions and what might have led to them. Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, here's a guy who, uh, yes, carried a gun, but he had a license for it. I mean, people who are up to no good go out, go out rob liquor stores and so forth uh, with their guns, they're not going to go get licenses. Um, this is a guy who had a wonderful reputation in his place at work, um, who was, uh, um, by every account, uh, a good human being. Uh, and so 
trying to build him up as some kind of dangerous person uh, is going to be more difficult than if there was an actual fight between Officer and uh, Mr. Castillo, which there wasn't. So uh, they're going to have a tougher time doing that uh, with uh, the deceased. And I hope uh, that it will not be allowed for uh, his character to be assassinated in some bizarre way after he's dead. I mean, we do see that in these cases. All they seem to have is the fact that he was a marijuana smoker. Um, so uh, they're not going to have an easy time uh, putting this on him. But they have to figure out why, to give the jury a reason why um, Officer Yanez should have been afraid in that moment, afraid for his life to make him uh, objectively reasonable user of deadly force. Thanks so much, David. Anytime. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. Okay, so now court has let out for the day. Uh, we heard this afternoon from several character witnesses for Yanez, including some of his childhood and college friends. Uh, the defense also called their own use of force expert today, who is a former suburban Minnesota police officer. And he said the opposite of what the prosecution's use of force expert said. The defense expert today said Yanez's actions the night of July 6th, from the traffic stop itself through the shooting, were reasonable. Of the shooting, he said, quote, there wasn't time to do anything else. Under a cross-examination, he did clarify that his report on the shooting did not include the dying statement from Philando Castile that he wasn't reaching for his gun or Diamond Reynolds' statement that he wasn't reaching for the gun. He said he didn't think that those were relevant. Also today, the defense put Philando Castile's firearms instructor on the stand. The instructor said that he teaches his students that if they're stopped by police, they should say first that they have a permit to carry before they even mention a firearm, because telling a police officer that you have a firearm right away can change the situation. He also said that all of this information is completely voluntary. You do not have to tell an officer that you have a firearm or a permit unless you are directly asked. One question that does continue to be critical throughout this trial is where Philando Castile's gun was the night of the shooting. We have now heard uh, three different versions of this from different first responders. All of them have said that the gun was in Castile's pocket, but they differ on how deep in the pocket it was, whether it was sliding out when they moved him onto a backboard or whether an officer had to reach down into his pocket to retrieve it. Where his gun was is a critical question because in their opening statements, the defense said that that night, Yanez saw the gun and Castile's hand on the gun during the stop. Yanez being able to see that, their argument goes, is what makes his actions reasonable. So, Tomorrow, it is extremely likely that we will see Officer Geronimo Yanez himself take the stand in his own defense. And we will be back with you when that happens. 
This podcast is reported by John Collins and Reham Fashir. It's produced by me, Tracy Mumford, and Hans Buto, and it's edited by Meg Martin. To stay up to date on the trial, follow us on Twitter at 74SecondsMPR or go to 74Seconds.org. Our theme music is by Joffrey Wilson. 74 Seconds is a production of Minnesota Public Radio News and American Public Media. Tracy from 74 Seconds, and we wanted to let you know that our colleagues at APM Reports just launched the new season of their award-winning podcast, In the Dark. In this second season, they explore a new story with life-or-death consequences. It's the case of four people who were killed in a small town in Mississippi, and the story of why a black man on death row has been tried six times for those murders. You can listen and subscribe to In the Dark on Apple Podcasts.